0: This is our design. Sound on Sight's Hannibal podcast, dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Colletti, contributing writer at Sound on Sight, and I am joined, as always, by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound on Sight. Kate, hello. Djokovic just won Wimbledon, and you don't care.
1: Yeah, I shouldn't say I don't care. I should say that I am not versed enough, well versed enough in uh, tennis. To know what that means other than that it's obviously a big deal and that Maybe. i've been following and i we have i have several uh twitter followers uh who i also follow fr- friends on twitter who really care about this and are very informed and i'm sure after we finish recording when i go back on twitter i'll see a bunch of exclamation points um but no i i, I cannot have the appropriate reaction to that
0: I actually don't care either. I just pretend to care. But one thing that I actually do care about is that for listeners of this podcast who have not seen the rest of season one of Hannibal or season two of Hannibal, this podcast will remain, as a reminder, mostly spoiler free. There will be a segment near the end of the episode in which we will address future things Hannibal related. So if you have not seen any of that and would like to remain spoiler free, please fast forward. That will be indicated in the post. Um, But other than that, We will now introduce our guests, special guests, two of them. This is a treat both from the AV Club. I I think I imagine the two of you kind of like Randall and Dante from Clerks. Is that accurate? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of,
2: yeah. (laughs) Well, yesterday, one of my other jobs is I work at at an actual video store, which still exists. And uh, Zach was in the store yesterday, and we were actually having a an argument about Star Wars and someone mentioned that it was exactly like a Kevin Smith movie. And, um, <laughs> so there you go.
0: Perfect. So joining us, of course, Zach Hanlon and Dennis Perkins from the Navy club, uh, returnees to this is our design. Thank you both for coming on.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: And as a reminder to listeners, we will be partaking in the enjoyment of alcoholic beverages this time around. For this is our design. Kate, what are you drinking today? On your birthday, I forgot to mention that at the top. Happy birthday, Kate!
1: (laughs) Thank you. As we record, it is it is my birthday. I am enjoying uh, on the you know to celebrate the occasion. I'm enjoying a skinny margarita. Uh, which I don't actually drink because they're skinny, but I drink because they're delicious. Just tequila and lime juice and a little agave nectar. And um, yeah, (laughs) takes out all the filler (laughs) of a regular margarita. Uh, But this is uh, a Patron tequila. I'm not, you know, just standard whatever comes in the pretty bottle. Uh, That's (laughs) that's what I'm drinking. There's a couple different uh, kinds of Patron now but I am not familiar enough with them to to be of use to that. So the one that comes in the green box, that's what I'm drinking and it is delicious. Sean, how about you?
0: Uh well, in honor of your birthday, I pulled out the the best of my remaining Scotches, uh which aren't many anymore, but this is uh Ardbeg Ugidal. So, it's a fantastic PD1 from Isla and it is among my favorites.
1: So, I'm drinking a drink that you would find abhorrent. And uh, you are the same to me, and I think that's kind of awesome.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. All right, let's get into this. And since we have uh, two guests who are co-workers and friends, I have a question specifically about co-workers and friends. So, uh, Dennis, we'll begin. And uh, Mm -hmm. in this episode, Jack and Will butt heads several times, most notably in the alleyway and the barn scenes. But the resolution we see at the end of this brings them closer together in a rather touching way. I think, do you see these two characters better as friends or coworkers?
2: Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think that Jack and Will's relationship is, um, you know, it's, it's never one thing or another. Um, and, uh, like I, I thought Will's, Will's, uh, behavior through this episode was, um, partly spurred on by Hannibal, uh, trying to drive a wedge in between Will and uh, Jack that uh, he started acting very much like a sort of a petulant teenager, uh, you know, sort of snapping and snarking at Jack, uh, rebelling against Jack's authority and what he saw or what Hannibal had him see as Jack manipulating him. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's Beverly at one point who uh, makes the the, the comparison to, Explicit, she says, uh, you know, when you when Jack yelled uh, in, in the alley, it was like hearing my mom use the F word for the first time. You know, so I think it's definitely there's there's a power imbalance between Jack and Will. And uh, this episode kind of really sort of points up how that relationship is kind of fraught that way.
0: Certainly there are things weighing down on Jack's mind external to this, and I'm, we'll get into Gina Torres in just a moment. But, Zach, the the last scene that we get here is Will coming to Jack's office and kind of saying, look, I'm going to not leave until you tell me what's going on. And that's one of the, the most beautiful moments I think we've seen thus far of friendship on this show. Would you agree?
3: Yes. Oh, yeah. And I, I think um, what makes their relationship so fascinating is that um, that I think they have almost compartmentalized. It's sort of like the way you see... Everybody, everybody, all the characters in the show have these very um the the boundaries between um work relationships and, and and friendships are very kind of blurry because you have uh you constantly see, especially in the first season, uh Jack going over to Hannibal's house to have dinner and um and you see like but at the same time he'll like he'll help consult on cases and then you see you never quite know exactly um, how close these people are. It's like this is their only real friend circle, or uh, the people they see every day would they help to fight and like, stop serial killers, which on the one hand sets up you know Hannibal's betrayal of them, but on the other hand makes this weird, like Dennis was talking about, the sort of power imbalance between um, Will and Jack, in that when they're working together, Will is like this sort of temperamental artist that Jack is trying to direct to be, to, to perform in the best way possible. And Will's very kind of skittish about the whole thing, but when they're off the case, there is a definite, I I don't, I don't think that their relationship would be so tempestuous when they're working together. If it wasn't for the fact that they were clearly friends outside of work, like the fact that will and I love how that scene at the end sort of clarifies that in a way that you might not have picked up before, but there's the sense of, yes, I mean, I am, I know we have our differences, but when it comes right down to it, when it, like in a situation where you clearly need help and you're clearly on the edge of things, I am here for you. And it kind of – it makes you like both characters more. And I love the way that it's like they sit down and they see it from the side. And you see – and you see Will, like Will says his piece, like, you know, I'm not, you don't have to talk, but I'm going to be here until you talk. And then Jack thinks and then it ends. And it's just it's, – yeah, no, it's really, really well done. It's, it's a, and it's just this nice moment of oasis and sort of peace after everything. It's like it's, like, it's, a, it's a really brutal episode. And to have it end in that moment of, like, this perfect clarity of, like, you know what? Everything else is messed up. I don't know what the hell's going on with my brain. Uh, I don't even know what your situation is, but I care enough about you to say that I am willing. I'm putting myself out there, and I I will help in whatever way I can.
0: Okay, we got the return of Booming Jack.
1: One of my favorite Jacks.
0: (laughs) There was actually, like, an audible echo in the alleyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, and I think that just shows the intensity of uh, of the character but also i think you know because we see less and less of booming jack as the show continues i think it also is a sign of the growing intimacy between the characters where he doesn't need that to pull that out as frequently and so when he does it's more significant um so you know when when will overreaches booming jack comes out and the, the other CSIs all scurry um but but I, th- I think the as much as I like Booming Jack, th- like we've said, they, these are this is clearly a growing friendship and a, there's a closeness between these characters. That means that uh, Jack will use that voice less and less with Will. All
0: right, let's get to it. We saw Gina Torres at the end of last episode, but this is clearly her coming out episode. Kate, is the Bella character someone you expected to see developed in a series like this insofar as TV shows usually give uh, main character's family members to interact with, and do you think that she fits into the, the design of Hannibal?
1: Um, well, I think she fits the show really well, but no, I did not expect to meet uh, to meet Jack's wife and to have her be played by Gina Torres and to have her be such a wonderful character. Uh, certainly I did not, uh, because that is very rarely what a show of this genre cares about doing, and Hannibal clearly does. Also because we just we haven't met any of the other characters' families and with the fourth episode, you know, not airing which had all of those interactions between the CSIs uh the, the text about um their families and you know their siblings and everything because that didn't air, this is really the first care, discussion of family or or you know a close nuclear you know either parents or siblings or or in this case a wife that we've seen for any of the characters. So I was surprised to to see Bella in this episode when I first saw it and certainly to see her so prominently featured, but I think she fits in very well. She tells us a lot about Jack and uh, to see uh, her and Hannibal start this connection, I I thought was really uh, probably the highlight of the episode for me.
0: Well, yeah, that's a really interesting aspect that you mentioned is, is Hannibal's part in it because he's definitely presented as somewhat of an intermediary in their marriage in this episode. Uh, Zach, what is it is? What is it about Hannibal Lecter that makes him effective in this role?
3: Well, he's impartial. Like he's fundamentally detached from everything. He we've seen you know we've seen throughout season one and season two, especially in his relationship with Will, that he has emotions, but he's always very clinical and and like he has a perspective on humanity as he doesn't consider himself part of it. There's that, that great moment. And the, in the, um, when they're having dinner together, the three of them, and they're talking about when she's like, refuses to eat because she believes that the, the food was, it was cruelly, the animals were cruelly killed. And he goes, I, I, I hire an ethical butcher. And like, there's this sense of like, he basically views humanity as a series of, um, sort of experiments, constantly running psychological experiments that he can just observe and tweak. And, it, on the one hand, that makes him a monster because it means he 's perfectly willing to kill someone and to be- him or irritates him. but on the other hand, if you 've ever been with a like hangout, especially even if you just hang out with your friends and they have problems it it 's always easier to judge other people's problems the further back you are from those problems, and especially in a situation like this where he can provide completely rational clear headed um understanding of both of these people because he 's very smart and he 's very detached um, so yeah
0: it is. Definitely uh, an understanding. And yeah, we saw an earlier scene up until this point with one of his other patients, Franklin. And obviously a very different tone, a very different connection between the characters. Dennis, do you think maybe an added aspect of it here is that both Jack and Bella are characters that Hannibal can respect on some level?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the line that always sticks with me you know, I, I I hear it most clearly from from Silence of the Lambs. I think I think it was in there, but just uh, when he talks about Hannibal talks about not coming after Clarice because the world is a more interesting place with you in it. It's just that's his uh, part of Hannibal's worldview is that the the world needs to be uh, populated by only things he approves of. And these are two people that he approves of very highly. I mean, he looks down on them, of course, but but he finds them interesting. He respects them. And uh, especially with, with Bella, I think he he discovers depths to her character that make her um, just utterly fascinating to him.
0: Uh, Sicking with Bella, Kate. you already mentioned uh, last week's episode that dealt with family, and that was an episode that um, kind of had thematic ties throughout whether that was dealing with the case of the week or what was going on with the main characters and and this episode I think is also one that clearly presents shared themes across the board Uh, would you be able to talk about choice with regards to Bella and the angel maker
1: there is definitely with Bella a a discussion of of choice throughout or, or an exploration of that because she she keeps choosing uh, things that maybe are the, are the characters that we know don't want her to so she chooses to keep her diagnosis to herself um, she she decides that uh, she chooses to not pursue treatment uh, at a certain point to not get chemo um, and and she's basically choosing to die and, and pr- sort of trying to prepare herself and not being able to handle. That at a certain in responding, I, I think that that scene we get between Jack and Belle at the end is just gorgeous and and heartbreaking. But this notion of trying to prepare herself or deal with what she's experiencing, um, but not really being able to, and having the process of trying to deal with that change who she is, and that that is contrasted uh, or paralleled, I should say, more with the Angel Maker who is trying to prepare himself to be able to die and willing to die and um, but instead of withdrawing in as as she has he is reaching out and and uh, hurting others in his attempts to you know self-preserve so in, in her attempts to protect those around her and not have to process and deal with everybody else's emotions about things she's withdrawing into herself and her- harming herself through not pursuing treatment theoretically depend I don't know that much about chemo but um but I, that's the parallel i see
0: it's it's unusual because uh i don't think this is a spoiler but at least up until this point um we've seen the agents either catch the killer or the killer has been killed in the case of Gary Jacob Hobbs uh this is the in terms of this being a case of the week and having a suspects he chooses to kill himself, and so that kind of removes a natural resolution uh, that you would expect from a story like this. I don't know. What was interesting to you about the Angel Maker, Zach?
3: Well, I mean, if I can go a little broader, Like to me, what's interesting about the whole episode is it sort of up to this point, it's the very, like, I, I wouldn't say Hannibal has been a standard show, but it has been a show, you know, there's a serial, the serial killers that do these monstrous things to people, and that's pretty typical, we accept that, and, and you know, always when you have a serial killer doing monstrous things to people, the big fear is, oh no, he's going to catch me and then I'm going to be dead, and that, that'll be horrible, and this episode introduces the fact that, well, guess what, you can avoid the serial killer, but you're going to be dead anyway. And with, uh, with Gina Torres's char- character, it's, it's basically introducing that it's like she's a fundamental reminder that this is the end for everyone. Like there are vari- – the reason like, the, the, like the, the, of the, the episode is so powerful is that it's sort of this reminder of this is a real thing that's happening. You could have all these fun games where people get desiccated and torn apart <laughs> and, and like dismembered and turned into mushrooms or whatever. But the thing is that it's still going to end up as death. And you can choose like these people. Like she's choosing for herself, and whereas other people are choosing for other people, there's still this fundamental reminder that these the stakes aren't just life or death, because death is always the end. The stakes are how life, the what the actual life itself. And the, the Angel Maker, basically, he. It's this choice, like it, it takes away that sense of resolution, and then it takes away the sense of cops and robbers. We're chasing him down, hey, we beat the bad guy, and the system is restored. Here, it's just no, it, you're gonna die anyway. It's just that's it. I mean, the 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 end. I mean, they also tie in. Sorry for the stutter. Um, <laughs> the this is the first episode where it certainly sets up the idea that that Will is unhealthy, and I will, I you know, don't want to spoil anything, but. Um, and and the, the the scene in the end where he, you know, hallucinates and sees the Angel Maker looking at him and seeing the fiery head and recognizing that there's something wrong with him. I mean, that's part of the point. But the fact is that we all have flaming heads. And that's, the, <laughs> to me, what makes the episode so devastating is it's this, it's very, very personal and very, very direct in a way that these shows so often aren't. Because serial killer shows are almost entirely about presenting, presenting death as this grand guignol fear. That you can eventually beat if you're clever enough, if you don't make the mistakes, and if you you have a gun and you're a cop or you're, like, really smart and you figure out the mystery. And in this episode, it's like, yeah, you found him, but he's already dead, and the, 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 the point isn't that you can beat this. You can't. The point is to find out how to live your life before this happens. And to me, that's incredibly powerful. And I, I just remember watching this the first time when it was on TV and being blown away that they were basically just saying straight up, "Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't matter, guys. We're n- we're not doing this for the big mystery. There'll be suspense and stuff, but but really, e- death. Death is there always." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so you key in on an inevitability then. So only five episodes in, uh, would you say that this is a defining feature of Hannibal the series?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, well, it's that's kind of it, it, one of the reasons it makes. The whole idea of doing a prequel work because this is ostensibly a prequel that, co- that totally accepts the fact of, of the inevitability and like it comments on itself and saying, yes, Hannibal is going they're, – they're going to eventually – I mean, this, this is not a spoiler. If you watch the show, even if you didn't know anything was going on, they are going to eventually figure out that Hannibal is a monster. Um, and like that's built in throughout like the first and second season, the way it works. And it's, it's really less about resolutions and more about that process. Um, and inevitability is, ma- is what makes the process so rich and so vital and so, well, d- delicious, I guess you could say.
0: I mean, I'm just thinking off of the cuff here about this because um, I find this a really interesting idea. Kate, do you think then that the characters in Hannibal, um, the, the successes and the failures that they experience are, are somewhat dictated by uh, allowing themselves to, to understand and accept that inevitability, I guess? I'm just spitballing.
1: I think some of them, yes, and some of them, no. The characters, because I immediately was thinking actually about the supporting characters and how they fit into that. Because how Hannibal fits into an acceptance of death is an easier conversation to have because he has talked about that on the show, how he feels about death. Um, but how a character like Beverly or or the other tax or Alana fit in with that um their you know this this concept of death and the acceptance of it or the the inescapability of it i think also ties in with the level to which the various characters um their level of self-delusion or um you could also say hope depending on your personality uh so how they combine those so with jack versus bella their their different responses to her diagnosis the one is much more uh, fatalist than the other, theoretically. Um, without getting into anything that may or may not come later, so, so there, you know, Jack's success or failure in that relationship, as he's trying to process and help her deal, Bella deal with what she's uh, experiencing, is very much tied to uh, to to his ability to accept. The inevitability of her fate which at first is not is not something that he doesn't speak of it in terms of a it being a certainty in in the way that she does she has accepted the certainty of her fate and he has not and so i think that does shape their their relationship moving forward and um, the success or failure of their roles as supporters of each other
0: I would agree because it seems like the more resistant that Jack is to that inevitability, then the more difficulty he has. I mean, like a lot of this episode focuses on his breakdown uh, in parallel with Will's. But like you said, Zach, the having that be having the uh, those be the stakes is much more interesting than a traditional uh, version of this story because it allows for. Exchange that you've mentioned already, Kate, between Jack and Bella at the end, and she kind of says, we'll beat this together, and there's an implied question mark that's uh, a little bit sarcastic, as if, like, he probably thinks this, even though it's ridiculous, and his response is, no, it's your fights, but uh, I'm in your corner. And so he can't really relinquish the resistance, I think, entirely. He still wants to believe, and I think that that's something that viewers can probably... Maybe not relate to as much as respect in his character. I guess. Um, I wanted to get back to the Angel Maker, uh, Dennis. You you reviewed the most recent season of uh, History's Vikings for the April. I did. Yes. Yeah, that, Blood Wings. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so that that featured an episode that that centered around the image of the Blood Eagle, right? Yeah. And, and that's referenced in this episode with images like this. What do you think the Angel Maker? Um, well, not the angel. I guess. What is the show going for? Is it something shocking or artistic? And do you think that Hannibal, as a series, is trying to accomplish both of those things in equal measure?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, that's just what you said at the end. I mean, the whole show. I mean, people talk about the violence on Hannibal, and it is one of the most you know graphic shows I've ever seen on network television. But at the same time, people talk about the how beautiful the show is, and they don't really. There's no real separation as far as the show's aesthetic, whether it's a beautiful meal that Hannibal's prepared or how carefully a a set or a shot is prepared or if it's lingering over, in this case, you know, <laughs> a couple of, uh, you know, uh, people uh, skinned and, you know, with their lungs draped over their back and, you know, it's it's all aesthetically of a piece in a way. And... I think it it sort of it plays into what sort of hannibal's you know the character's view of the world is there's there's so much beauty and and you know deliciousness in imagery regardless of uh what it is you're looking at anything can be you know uh an an object of uh transcendent beauty uh, just from the way he looks at it you know there's it's not he doesn't recoil from an image like that in horror in a, in a way the show doesn't either. Um, it's a really it, – it kind of puts me off uh, off balance a lot because it's, it's approaching violence in a way that television shows usually don't.
0: It's so you expect to kind of be – to have a, a certain reaction and the way that it's portrayed creates a different one for you?
2: I think it's more that um, – <laughs> it's like it you know it would be like somebody dealing with someone like Hannibal you're you're dealing with a different animal here it's not you know it's you can't i i don't react to the show in the way that i generally react to a television show because it's coming from a a place that is very i don't know it's different from um i'm not expressing this well but it's <laughs> it's like if you're looking at Hannibal and you're talking to Hannibal you're talking to a person but then at a certain point you realize that he is and isn't a person it, just because it's he's coming from a place that you don't understand
1: you've got to love how the show first prepares yes jack is preparing will he's preparing the audience i <laughs> I, I know you guys have seen some creepy stuff on the show mushrooms etc but uh you know just gird your loins uh <laughs> and, and then then shows us that you know horrific uh image which on the scale going back and watching this again after having seen what comes later it's almost quaint which is terrifying that that's my relationship <laughs> with this level of violence at this point um but but then then has the audacity to say hey but guys it could have been so much worse we could have done this blood eagle thing so come on i mean we we we, we have we went halfway <laughs> That is a show that is confident <laughs>
0: absolutely is uh Zach before we start recording, you mentioned that you were impressed by this episode in terms of its structure. Could you talk about that?
3: well, it just sets up so much stuff like the whole thing like there's that there's that beautiful scene in um in in Jack's office where he's um i mean he's interviewing the the wife estranged or ex wife of the killer. And And the kill, like she starts talking about why she left him, what happened after the, he got his cancer diagnosis. Um, and I love the fact that she says that you know I left him after the, the cancer thing. I know that makes me sound a hor- sound like a horrible person, and the episode doesn't really judge her for it. Like it's such a impartial episode. Um, even the killer has like like he you feel some sort of sympathy for him, but there's the bit where where Fishburn's just watching her. And you could just see as Jack figures out that Bella has cancer and it's, it's a remarkable piece of acting, but I feel like that the neat, the sort of, I see, so you see cleverness or neatness and it sounds almost reductive, but the way that sort of everything kind of feels like it fits together to me, the best episodes of Hannibal have this feeling of not, not so much a puzzle that you need to, to solve, but a situation in which all of the different threads sort of come together and enhance one another. Where, so you'll have, you see Hannibal talking with um with, with Will and, and Will's like, Are you trying to do a strange read from Jack? And later on you see Jack sort of turning on on Will. But you'll also see the fact that, that you see Hannibal sniffing Will at one point. And this, this the whole idea of like, I can smell the, the smell the your um sickness. <laughs> I can smell your sickness. Sounds like a nine inch nails album. <laughs> um, but like this this setup that uh that they, earlier on that dinner scene where it establishes that that Hannibal um, first of all, that we figure out how he knows Bella is sick, because of course he'd figure out. It also gives us a, perf- a pretty good reason to uh, figure out how the Angel Killer understands that the people he's stalking are sick, even though they also t- turn out to be like bad people as well, which they never really explain how that works. But it all, and at the same time, it sets up the fact that there's something wrong with Will. So you have the the overarching arc, overarching arc, of season one is Will and Hannibal's relationship and Will's slow deterioration, and this episode finds a way to establish that, that both connects with the main storyline and also um, enhances it. Like it's, well, it's flavor. It, like it, the, the various entrees combined together to create a very uh, impressive, um, I already used the word flavor. So it's not something a flavor, mm. um, but it, it's it, the way it all, it, it all feels like everything fits. Everything makes sense. Everything is sort of this, the, and it builds to that sort of scene where, the scene between we, which we've been talking about between Bella and Jack, which is basically this idea of um, the two of them trying to deal with this problem in their own very specific ways, and I and the episode finding a way to be both sympathetic towards both of them, but at the same time not make Jack look like the hero and not make like, Bella look like the victim. They're both like very, and I, I just feel like that like that it, it like explores relationships in a really interesting way, and I, I just I'm just amazed at how. I don't know. I have seen up I love the show. I love the show a lot. And there are there have been a few episodes where it's been like, well, it, this is good, but it's not quite there. But this one to me is just like it's firing on all cylinders. It's the cliche like everything just seems to be exactly what it needs to be to tell the story they're telling and to, to, to show these people in the most powerful and and, sort of, and a heartbreaking way possible.
0: And let's stick on Will Graham for just a, a little bit longer. Uh, Dennis, we've talked a little bit about how this episode draws a lot of attention to his mental and physical health, whether it's in jeopardy or not. Um, so he's being pushed so far that he's sleepwalking. He's getting short with Jack. He's worrying colleagues like Beverly, who confronts him about that in a really spectacular scene. Um, and he's also seen the Angel Maker addressing him, even though the Angel Maker is dead at that point. Do you, do you find it important or essential that? we're seeing will go through this right now
2: um yes i think the episode really draws the parallel between will and the angel maker uh there's the conversation where the the idea that uh he was uh the angel maker had been uh a normal person for lack of a better term until this this outside thing changed him and there. Seeded through the episode, there are all kinds of parallels with Will. That the idea that there is something physically wrong with him, possibly, you know, that they, you know, his behavior. I mean, we first see him, you know, sort of walking down the this the highway in his underpants, uh, not knowing where how he got there. Uh, wait, you know, uh, <laughs> waking up, uh, standing on his roof, um, you know, and and their conversations. The idea that, uh, and Will attributes it to. Uh, the effect of the job, seeing all the things that he's seeing and going so deeply into it. But I think um, uh, the idea that um, something can get inside your head and can change you um, and make you do and and be things that you, you were not before, I think is, is all seeded right through the episode.
0: It is, and kind of how Zach was talking about the structure and how it does things that uh, this series or stories from this genre don't necessarily do. What I like most about what we get with Will in this episode is that the the show is very conscious of making sure that it's believable, that somebody in this position, somebody who has to go through um, these steps to catch the people that he's after, it, it has to take a toll somewhat similar to this, or possibly even worse. And so, uh, it's important for me, and I, and I rarely have issues with believability, but And especially with something like this, which is often heightened in many ways. But that's been a very important part of my viewing experience of Hannibal, I think, is is making sure that the characters are having uh, believable and natural reactions to everything that they're encountering. So, um, yeah, I find it really effective. But uh, we'll move on to our three recurring segments for the podcast. And beginning, of course, with Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us? about the scoring and Coquille.
1: Well, first of all, the uh, the classical piece used in this episode is the Adagio movement of Mozart's Clarinet Concerto, which is uh, one of the final pieces he composed before his death. It is a gorgeous, amazing piece. Uh, one of the standard pieces of repertoire, one of the pieces of standard repertoire for clarinetists, uh, classical clarinetists specifically. Um, and it's absolutely lovely. It's used in the dinner scene, With uh, Jack and Bella and Hannibal and, uh, oh, Sean, remember when we were talking about season two of this show and a a memorable, a very notable clarinet line came in and I said, I don't think they've ever used clarinet on this show before.
0: (laughs) And then we did like three of these in the first season and there's so much clarinet.
1: So much clarinet. Yeah. (laughs) So, So, yeah, that it's It's a very beautiful piece, the adagio, but it's also very specifically it's very mournful and sad there's a it's there's a simplicity to it but also there's this very you know some musicologists theorize that he had an he had a sense the end was coming when he was composed or at least seeing where it falls in you know his compositions is one of the very last things he composed before his death. Uh, it's hard not to make that comparison. Also, uh the he composed it for a good friend, one of his very good friends, uh, Stadler, who is a um who is a very exceptional clarinetist. Um and and uh, one of the reviewers wrote about oh, so there's that connection of friendship and and everything that in that, you know, that goes throughout the episode as well. But uh one of the a reviewer Wrote about one of Sailor's performances of this piece um in in seventeen eighty four quote never ha- should I have thought that a clarinet could be so capable of imitating a human voice so closely as it was imitated by thee uh verily thy instrument was has so soft and lovely a tone that nobody who has a heart can resist it, and so having that be sort of the bella and jack theme or or selection in this episode, I thought was really effective and lovely um throughout the rest of the scoring. In our early breakfast scene with Will and Hannibal, notably, there is no music for a part of it, which I thought was interesting. And the the sort of sound wall percussion uh, uh, effect that the show uses comes in when they start discussing aggression, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the opening scene has a lot of driving eighth notes, but they're very subdued. So just as Will is in this sort of... St- Dreamlike, bizarre state. So, so is the the music very. It's it's pushing him forward like the stag is in that scene, but but gently. Um, and then also, uh, there is a you know when we get the second uh, angel scene, uh, the the crime scene. There's like a, a shuddering to the music that really imitates Will's state of mind at that point. He's really he's damaged. Significantly, something's not right. Um, and the music imitates that as he tries to deal with this, you know, the second crime scene. And then at, at the barn at the end, there's just this, um, the, the music just feels sort of drafty for the first part of that scene, which in a way that I think is really effective and mimics the barn itself and the, uh, the atmosphere of the, of the space. But that's before Will's hallucination starts in with the music changes there. But um, but yeah, so that it's it's the music is the strangest and the or the strongest I should say and the most prominent it's been when we get to that barn. So just as Will is uh, his reaction to this is intensifying with each crime scene, so is the music. And then at the very end, in the Will and Jack scene, we get this really mournful but um, uh, simple piano line. That there's an inevitability about the 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 very simple chord accompaniment of piano. Accompaniment of that scene that I think is very effective and um there's motion, but it's very uh, subdued and and uh almost uh pulling away and, and it's very it's it's there's not a lot of scoring that really stands out and you know punches you in the face like like it often can happen on this show in in this episode, but there's a lot of uh there are several moments that are just really. Uh, evocative for for me at least. Did you guys pick up uh, anything? Were there any particular scenes that really worked for you musically?
3: Uh, after that, <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> that's. I think that I think this is your ballpark, Kate. You're so good at this. It's it's. Like I said this last time you had me on. It just it it introduces a whole element to the show that I I'm usually just not that that cognizant of. So yeah, good work.
1: <laughs> Go me. That's not the answer <laughs> I was looking for, but I will take it. <laughs>
0: That's fine, because uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty more to discuss in the next two segments, the first of which, of course, is, I guess, the second recurring segment, but the first of the next two. Fuck it. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll move on to the devil in the details. So any little things that stood out uh, while you were watching the episode, be they visual or otherwise, lines of dialogue, editing choices, um, I'll, be big, I'll begin by saying that uh, there were the cut after um, Will and Jack have visited the barn and we see the back of the angel maker as he's approaching Will and then it goes to commercial break and that was a cheap trick that Hannibal doesn't often use so I I'm going to criticize this episode if just for that alone Zach what little things stood out to you in this episode
3: um Gosh, I think I already kind of talked about the the whole – the way the plot was structured and stuff. Um, But I I really love Will's dogs. (laughs)
1: Winston, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Winston's the best. Yeah. Um, So, no, I I can't really think of anything else specific off the top of my head. Um,
0: No, that's good. Dogs are good. Dogs are always good.
1: (laughs) Are we going to talk about the stag at all? I don't know if this is a place for it, but –
0: Yeah, well, we'll talk about it definitely in the next section, I think.
1: Okay. Because that's what the the Winston scene is like right there.
0: You're right, yeah. Okay, so the parallels between uh, the stag and Winston being next to Will, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that works. Uh, Dennis, any little things stick out to you?
2: Uh, Picking up on the stag thing, uh, re-watching it, I hadn't noticed it the first time, but you guys have me trained to look for little details now. So uh, (laughs) when... Uh, the first time that Hannibal, Ian and Bella are meeting in his office, every time the shot goes back to him in the background, you can see he has the stag statue in his office and you don't see the statue, but you see the shadow of the statue behind him sort of over his right shoulder. So it's sort of like even as he's... Helping her or purporting to help her—it's almost like you can. Think the, the little stag uh, devil is is sitting on his shoulder the whole time.
0: Perfect. Okay, go for it.
1: That's awesome. I totally. I'm gonna have to go back and look for that then because I I totally missed that and that is super cool. Um, <laughs> I, I've got two main ones, so I'll just go with one of them now, which is when Jack is walking away from that second crime scene. I just, I the visuals of that are. Fantastic. I'm a I'm a film noir fan and that is straight up film noir. He's in silhouette. We have he's got his like his long coat, he's got the collar up and everything. Uh that's it's backlit and you know that's just that's full on film noir for me and I really love that visual and the way that it adds a completely different uh context if you want to read into it to to Jack's role in this episode and in general as a cop.
0: Is that that's coming out of the alleyway? Yeah. Okay, The another detail I was going to mention was when he's leaving the barn as well, there's something about the color palette used in the background of that scene, so the the foliage out there, it just looks like he's walking into a painting, uh, that's the best way that I can describe it. If you go back and look at it, the, the combination of colors just seems so unnatural uh, and yet so beautiful in the way that this show often does. So that was that was fantastic. The the other little thing that I'll mention which is certainly an example of over analysis that nobody's going to care about but uh,
1: <laughs> I will <laughs> care about. That's how I roll. All
0: right. All right. So the the different times that we see on Will's clock as he's not able to sleep. Um we get three of them. The third one I have nothing to say about. So maybe this is false analysis overall, but uh, the first two. Uh 11:35 and 2:02. So, 11.35 is one minute after 11.34, obviously, and 11.34 on that kind of clock, if you look at it upside down, is hell, so it's like he's just, <laughs> it's like he's moved to the minute after hell, so.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, God. And then, <laughs> and then
0: 2.02, if you look at it upside down, looks like SOS, so he's in need of help.
1: huh fun. Wow. Yeah.
2: i am I'm willing to believe you. <laughs>
1: That's awesome.
0: There you go. That's that's all I got for devil in the details. <laughs> go for it, Kate.
1: Okay, well, Will's, um, we get uh, mention of, of fishing in this episode, and uh, at one point, Will is wearing this, like, vest thing that looks really like a fisherman's vest, like the kind of thing you'd see a fly fisherman wearing out in the stream, uh, just the lines of it and the co- the. The collar and everything, so I, I like that um, that we had this reference to the angel maker being a fisherman, and then we get that visual connection made with Will. Um, and then just I, a couple other things, I guess, little things. First of all, those figs looked delightful as much as I'm... I'm with Bella on foie gras. Foie gras just kind of creeps me out, but the figs looked very tasty. And I, I wanted to ask you guys about the projection that we get from Will at the top because like in Oof and in the some of the earlier episodes, not the pilot, but the, I I don't remember it from the pilot at least, but the second, third, and fourth episode also, the projections have been very brightly lit. Very, um, you know, in, in, in the next episode, which we'll talk about next week, they're more the visual aesthetic that... I'm used to the rest of the show maintaining, but in this episode as well, we, that first projection we get is sort of harshly lit, and I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that, if you have a preference between those two approaches, or if I'm just thinking about it too much.
0: I did not notice that, but you're right. Well, that was the first thing, I think, when we were uh, re-watching the first couple episodes of this season. The, the brightness of it was kind of unusual. Um, And it might just be because we're so used to it not being that, that that's why it stood out. But I didn't, I don't think I was picking up on it while watching this one.
1: And I think it was just on my brain because it was, it really stood out to me in episode four, particularly. Which listeners will remember I wasn't that fond of certain elements and that was one of them from that episode. So maybe that's why it stood out to me here. But by the time we get to next week, I will, it, it will be back to what I expect it to be. So whatever, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But that was another thing I noticed. And that's it for me for Devil in the Details.
0: All right, well, let's move to the final segment, which is the new one for this season of This Is Our Design, and that is Spoiled Meat. So if you have not seen any further episodes of Hannibal, fast forward now. All right, Zach, did you want to kick things off? Because you were talking earlier about some Will-related things.
3: Sure, sure. Okay, now that I... We'll, we'll see how the editing works. Uh, no, I, I feel like I like how this episode sets up the main conflict and how Hannibal's going to slowly try and destroy Will's mind. I mean, it's already there with him trying to put a wedge between him and uh, Jack, but that, to me, the moment where he sniffs Will uh, <laughs> is 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 very indicative because we've already seen him smelling earlier. And the line about, oh, uh, joke about Old Spice, uh, unless it was the, the the show was trying to set up that Hannibal was was going to start flirting or trying to seduce Will... That doesn't – you need something else there, and the fact that it sets up the idea that he knows Will's sick and he's going to use that is pretty important. It's something you can miss, I guess, but um, what I always found really interesting about that conflict is the way it seems to be going in the direction of, boy, you see all these horrible things, and it drives you insane, and it makes you a killer, which is sort of like the accepted line of, oh, all this bad, vile media is going to turn you into a serial killer. It makes kids desensitized toward violence. Whereas the opposite happens, he's just becoming more open to it, and he actually is legitimately sick. Um just makes him more vulnerable to Hannibal's uh, machinations. But yeah, no, I thought I liked how the episode sort of established that and established that like like some part of Will's brain clearly understands that he's not well and is trying to warn him. But the problem is because of the whip, because he's working with Hannibal, and Hannibal keeps saying, "Oh, you look at these things, and they're going to go into your soul." And because Will. Probably already feels very vulnerable. His instinctual response is to say, "Well, all these bad things that are happening to me, it must be because I'm psychologically breaking down, and not because I'm actually sick." Um, but they said like he's he can't sleep. He's like sweaty. He goes out like the the sleepwalking late like late in life. Uh, well, not late in life, but he's in a, as an adult. So it's, there's definitely laying the pipe, so to speak, for the uh, the eventual revelation that that he has encephalitis. I think it was or like a brain. Fever, brain, or whatever.
1: Yeah, encephalitis, and that, that that scene is so. When you know what's coming next, too, that scene is just so hilarious. With, Did you just smell me? Which is yeah. a funny <laughs> line and well delivered by you, Dancy. But then to know, oh my god, he's just figured out the encephalitis, and then to watch Mass Mickelson's face in that scene to see to watch him process and think, and I don't think it's, you know, I I don't think it's a stretch to say. Um the actor could have known at that point what was coming in the next couple of scripts, so to know that you know that that will is actually physically sick and so to watch Hannibal deciding starting to decide what he's gonna do with this information that will is sick um and who depending on how good his nose is that he's specifically brain sick uh is is certainly fun, and like you were saying, there's this um there is this very popular trend in these types of shows, or shows that wish they were this good, I should say, um, where you look into the dark and abyss, and the abyss looks into you. And and while I do very strongly feel that this whole first season is exploring the trauma of violence and and what happens to Will and how it all starts from this very justifiable homicide in the pilot, the fact that you know, it's not just it's not just having uh, experienced that trauma. It's not just being surrounded by this violence. It's not just having Hannibal Lecter as your best friend slash shrink. It's also, you have to be sick for that to push it over to the edge to where we're going to go by the end of the season. Um, is really very wonderful and you know it's again subverts expectations and i think that's why i was so willing to accept that he was that there was nothing physically wrong with him that it was just it made sense to me watching it the first time that he was just you know stressed and dealing with all these violent images and that was making him sleepwalk and everything because every other show that's what they would do
3: well it's also i mean if they i just i feel like it's 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 a it's the sort of thing where it's easy to forget like afterwards, because it sort of played off as a joke. Um, But for me, it's just such an obvious moment in that they've set it up very carefully and that they they establish it earlier because it looks like the reason they're establishing that you can smell sickness on the person is to both establish how Hannibal figures out Bella and also to give some sort of remote justification for the killer. But you have that very clear scene. And it's definitely the sort of thing where, I don't know, I feel like at the the time, I don't know if I caught on that he was sick, but it definitely seems like, and maybe it just seems more glaring in retrospect, but like in a good way. I I like how it's the exact sort of scene where you could watch it and go, Wait, that's that's weird and then get immediately, you know, distracted by all the other amazing, horrible things that are happening.
1: Well, and because the illness that we see from Will feels like an extension of what we've already seen him dealing with, like sweating through his sheets and, you know, the troubled dreams that we saw from him in the first few episodes where I don't think he's sick yet. This is the episode where definitely he's sick. But the, you know, sleepwalking doesn't feel like that big of a difference from the fact that he likes to walk around at night in, out, out in the fields around his house anyways, as they've talked about in the previous episodes of the season, and also just you know, his troubled sleep to begin with. And so it, it lulls you into a false sense of security. It lulls you into the sense of, oh, I know what they're doing. It makes yeah. you feel very smart as a viewer before it you know, mocks you in a very loving way a few episodes down the line
0: at a certain point will refers to the idea of uh, going to sleep in a sleeping bag as the poor man's straight jacket <laughs> and exactly one season from now so season two episode five is when we get him in the straight jacket going to to see um, the Beverly tableau
1: we also get um, we, we had discussion of hunting Recently, with uh, Garrett Jacob Hobbs and the cabin and everything, um, and this this is our first straight up fisherman uh, parallel as well. And, and Will as a fisherman in that one, you know, scene I referenced earlier with his costuming. So we again, I, I'm a, I'm on the lookout for teacups and china, and I'm also on the lookout <laughs> for hunting and fishing. And he so calls that was... him.
0: Well, he's, he says maybe I'm an old mug instead of fine china. Is that what he said in this episode? Yeah,
3: I think some... so. Yeah,
0: yeah. so. I'll be on the lookout for old mugs as well. <laughs> uh, Dennis, any spoilery stuff you want to mention?
3: Sure.
2: Um, I don't know if this technically qualifies as a spoiler, but but re- referencing what happens with Bella later. First of all, I just want to talk about Gina Torres because I think we can all agree uh, just how 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 wonderful she was in this episode. I don't know what what you got to do to get an Emmy nomination around here, but um, uh, the the idea later on that Hannibal doesn't go along with her wishes and help her die or allow her to die I've always thought about you know the reasons why that is and I think you know the sort of seeds of it are planted here just um, Bella's I mean we talked earlier about how it was it's kind of surprising that this character would be developed you know it's the wife of a main character and on another show that might be somebody pretty extraneous and not well developed but also like we said it's it's almost like she's a a visitor from outside of the show's world and the way she's introduced here she's it's not just her physical presence and how, her stillness and the you know what Gina Torres brings to it but there's the scene at the end where um jack uh says you know it's it's your fight baby but i'm in your corner and first of all the way he says baby you know that that endearment it's just so uh Moving because it's not something you'd heard from Jack before. But when she says her quote, I think it's something like, you know, I appreciate that, Jack, but I'm not comforted by it. I know that you want to be the hero. You want to save the day or something like that. But I can't give you what you need. Just the way that she asserts her sort of personhood outside of this sort of milieu that Jack is is part of jack is the one who fixes things jack is the one who saves things but again i don't know if i'm explaining this properly but the the way that she asserts her own self outside of the show's world kind of marks her as it's almost like you know through the whole episode she she looks like an angel or like something otherworldly just in her personness personhood like she she is a visitor from outside she talks earlier about you know how jack is so preoccupied with what he does but there's a sense that she has a whole other life and that she asserts it here i love you i i know you want to help but i am my own person if i can reference another great work of television literature um it reminds me of uh, oz from buffy he has a scene if everyone's watched buffy the vampire slayer as i'm sure you have um there's a scene where he and, and his girlfriend, Willow have, have uh, become estranged because she sort of cheated on him. And he, she's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he says, yeah, you said that already. Um, and uh, I, I, oh uh, well, God, what does he say? The, <laughs> It's, it's not my problem. You know, it sounds like what you're doing is saying things to make yourself feel better, but I'm my own person. That's not my problem. And it's just the, a way of, she, she's formidable, is what I'm saying, and I think Hannibal, that that formidable myths is what Hannibal responds to later on. Anyway,
1: well, and you talk about her as an angel, and she's very prominently dressed in white in this episode, and almost all of her appearances later, there, either she's wearing a sort of gray color when she's supposed to, when she's t- more tired or more weak, or or she's wearing white, um, and. Her, that and so to see that costuming choice happen immediately in this first episode, I think uh, was was a nice surprise for me. And when you re- reference that that line, I I adore that line delivery from uh, Lawrence Fishburne of uh, "It's your fight, baby, but I'm in your corner." Because Will, uh, sorry, Jack and Bella speak to each other in a very distinct way. They speak slowly. They think about what they're going to say before they say it. They're respectful. There is a um. Level of um, propriety to their speech, but every now and again a line comes through quicker that they haven't, you know, thought through and then verbalized, and that gives you a glimpse of their their more passionate thoughts. Um, and that's and this is one of them. He he, it, it's not as like just the vowels and the consonants of it. It's it's not as 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 slow or as it's not as clipped or as properly enunciated as usually Jack's dialogue is, but that's because of the immediacy and the passion of it. And so to have that, I mean, it's just a wonderful line delivery. We get a couple moments like that from Bella as well, but that one really stands out.
0: Uh, other spoilery stuff. Um, mentioned the stag just a little bit. Director Guillermo Navarro actually draws a lot of attention to that moment when Will sees the, the, the small stag <laughs> in Hannibal's office. Um, and that was interesting because it's almost like he's subconsciously picking up on certain connections. And, you know, we've hypothesized about the stag and what it means and who it represents endlessly, and we still have no idea. But um, that to, to see it represented in Hannibal's office and to have Will see that, I think, was uh, an interesting touch in, in terms of the direction.
1: The, the last thing I have is just that um, it's just a brief thing, but uh, I love that office <laughs> and the show eventually stops taking advantage of the multi-level element as much as it does in these early episodes. And specifically there's a scene where they're, I think it's Hannibal's up top and Will's down below. And yeah. uh, that's an element that the show gets away from. We get more and more of the two of them on equal footing. But I just, I love the visuals of that set. And when they really take advantage of the multi-level element to it, I, I very much appreciate it. So I'm going to miss it when they stop doing that.
0: Yeah, I think that they should just, like, set up shop in Hannibal's office now that he's gone, just so that we can remain there.
1: Oh, I would <laughs> love to see that. Oh, see, that's, this is, okay, so we would have the Will and Bev buddy cop show we get another scene of them being friends here. And I want to say with this noir element, let's have them open up their own PI office out of Hannibal's, you know, former, you know, former practice space. (laughs) That'd be perfect. It'd be great. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, Anything else that anybody wanted to mention regarding this episode? Uh, Doesn't have to be spoilery, but any topics that you wanted to address that we haven't talked about yet?
3: Uh, I I just want to say really quick, um, because uh, Dennis, that would the, the the whole thing about that conversation between um Bella and, and Jack. To me that kind of sums up the whole episode and that it's sort of this fundamental I guess it's what I was kind of going monologuing about earlier, but that idea of I know you want that to be to be a comfort, there be, there just gets a certain point where you can't resolve something like it's a problem that can be solved or and like the fact that he refers to it as a battle. To me just there's that fundamental difference in the fact that the show underlines that in one of its best scenes to say you know we're like you have these characters who view this their never-ending fight and there's one character good no it's not a fight it's, this is just my life and this is how it's going to end um i just find that really remarkably powerful especially in context
2: yeah no i'm, I'm with you and just to go back because i love talking about gina torres but her Yay. her line <laughs> her line uh you know uh talking to hannibal just how uh, almost bemused, she is by her situation. She has a line, you know. She kind of uh, comments on on what she's telling him by saying, "It's such it's such a boring story. The ending's always the same." Um, just she just uh, just really powerful, and like she like Zach was saying, I mean, she has a level of understanding that is sort of outside of the daily kind of fight that these other characters are in.
1: Well, and we find out later about her mother, too, which adds to that. Um, But yeah, Gina Torres is amazing. And how great is it to actually get to see her and Lawrence Fishburne act together? Uh, For those who don't know who are listening, they're married in real life. And a lot of times when you get real life spouses on TV shows or film playing, you know, couples or people who are getting together, it doesn't necessarily work. But, oh, man, it's wonderful to watch them together here.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah
0: yeah but yeah no the that inevitability again is definitely there and yes gina torres gina torres, gina torres. i'm glad that she's still <laughs> alive in the series so
3: that's that's another fascinating thing like it's like uh i remember todd with my former <laughs> former boss uh talking about uh, about how he actually kind of hopes that the mo- more, most of the characters at the end of season two survive spoiler alert um but that seems to fit in as this idea of, like, yeah, we we're, she's going to die, but we're going to keep, like, it's not going to be this convenient, like, oh, this is the most dramatic moment. Now she's dead. No, we're just going to keep bringing her back and eventually she'll be gone. But we're going to make sure that we, you know, get the most out of the character. And just to remind you that, that this sort of just lingers, it's not like a convenient, well, she has cancer. And then we get a telegram at some point and Dak looks sad. No, she has cancer and this just goes on. That's, yeah.
0: All right, and that's probably where we'll end the discussion this week. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about Season 1, Episode 6, Entree. Um, but once again, thank you to both of our spectacular guests, Zach Hanlon and Dennis Perkins. Zach, where can our listeners find you online?
3: Uh, you can find me at the A.V. Club um, where I'm reviewing uh, 24 and, well, that'll be over by then. But I'm reviewing stuff on the A.V. Club and I'm on Twitter at Z <laughs> Handlin, H-A-N-D-L-E-N. So yeah.
0: And Dennis, where can listeners find you?
2: Uh, also, AV Club. Uh, honored to say I'm a uh, colleague of, of uh, Zach and Kate's there, and um, uh, I'm reviewing currently two shows I don't really like. But, Tyrant and uh, Halt and Catch Fire are my gigs at the moment. Uh, and on Twitter, I am Dennis Perkins, and then the number five.
0: And this will go up probably when those shows are done, but go back and read Dennis's reviews of them if you watch those seasons. Maybe you'll like them more than he did. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kate, where can our listeners find you online?
1: Well to follow the the trend here I do have reviews sub- of over at the AV Club you can read um, I, again I'm not sure exactly when this is going out but I'm gonna guess that I'm still talking about Spartacus and uh, Blackadder over there. Uh, so I see I, I really looked out there. I feel bad for you like your shows are way more current. I'm sure way more people are reading them. <laughs> than mine are, but I love my show so much. Um, that's over at the AV Club, but you can also find me, of course, I'm the TV editor at Sound of site, and I've got plenty of articles and reviews going up there as well. Um, and uh, on on Twitter, I'm at the Televerse, and I love talking about this stuff with you guys, so drop me a line, and we can talk about uh, the Clarinet Concerto and how it's just so amazing and awesome, and how I, ma- I was an idiot for thinking that Clarinet was a new thing in Season 2.
0: <laughs> and you can find me at the AV Club? In the comments section.
1: <laughs> what? Well, what? Where?
0: Damn. Went there. All right. um, You're one of those. Yeah. Yes. I got so many accounts, you guys don't even know.
1: <laughs> we like them, though. <laughs>
0: well, I have ones that are specifically designed to make the reviewers hate themselves.
1: Well, well done. done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mission achieved. <laughs>
0: So, things that are actually true, uh, you can find my written reviews over at Sound On Site or at TVOvermind.com and uh, also co host uh, the Televerse with Kate, which is the podcast about other TV stuff. Uh, but that's that. Once again, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. Three,
3: with no-